Welcome to Digging In, where we provide a front row seat to politics in New Hampshire. I'm State Representative Anita Burroughs. I'm here to bring you the inside track on the people and politics that are shaping our state. I want to thank Representative Dave Luno for taking the time to broadcast two episodes of Digging In with me to discuss public education. Today is the second of those two episodes, and Dave will be speaking about standards for public education, school funding, and donor towns. Dave is a state representative from Hopkinton who is well known in the legislature and beyond as a staunch advocate for public education in the Granite State. So, so Dave, you had wanted to talk um, a little bit about proposed rules for public school approval. So um, why, don't you, why don't you talk about that for a little bit? So this can get really wonky fast. Okay. So, so, <laughs> so cut me off. Um, okay. But so every 10 years, a little bell goes off at the Department of Education that says, oop, look, time to uh, take a look at, uh, at the standards for, for our public schools. And it doesn't mean that you have to rewrite all the standards or come up with something new or anything like that. But it's just a little reminder that, uh, that every decade, give it a look, make sure it's up to date, make sure it's current with what our, our students need and what our state needs. And so that little timer went off about a, a year, year or two ago, and uh, the Commissioner of Education and the State Board issued a sole source contract to a former member of the State Board to uh, help rewrite the rules for um, the standards for public schools. And these rules, these standards, include everything from what program studies a high school has to offer, at least what, what a minimum program of studies is. It also includes things on um, health and wellness, including mental health, from early elementary, pre-kindergarten, kindergarten, early elementary, all the way through high school, so very grade appropriate or age appropriate uh, curriculum, and how, uh, how students will be assessed and how schools will be held accountable to making sure that they're delivering an adequate education. Because, uh, you know, we have a state constitution that says, uh, said New Hampshire's got to provide opportunity for an adequate education for all of its children. And it does so via our public schools. We don't do it via charter schools. We don't do it via private schools or religious schools or vouchers or anything else. We do it through, through public schools. And so um, this proposed rewrite um, or this pro- these proposed rules or soon to be proposed rules from sort of sneak previews that we've been able to see so far are doing things like reducing the, uh, the number of days in the school year, substantially reducing the number of days. By how much do you say? Well, in an earlier draft, I think it was reduced from 180 to 160. Wow. That may be changing some more. Wow, I, I that don't is know. a lot of days. Yeah. yeah, and and you know, and keep in mind what what we just talked about, Anita, too, about how you know these 180 days in schools, this these are kids, you know, learning how to be friends and learning how to how to deal with differing circumstances that that some of their friends may be be going through, how to be empathetic, you know, how to work through challenges, how to talk with grownups. Right. 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 So we go from 180 days of how to talk with grownups to 160 days of how to talk with grownups, or how to how to play fair on the. That, on the that is that is kind of astonishing. 20 days. Yeah. I thought you were going to yeah. say five or something like that. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. So and and I don't know where it's where it's going to land because all this work by the commissioner 
and the sole source contract is being done in secret. And uh, they'll argue, no, it's not being done in secret, that we're going around the state. No public hearing? Um, no public hearing yet. And there have been public presentations, but they haven't been presenting what's been going on. They've been collecting public feedback, but they haven't um, exhibited any, any of, there's no evidence that any public feedback's been incorporated into. Um, are they required to at some point in the process? Yeah, they are. So mm -hmm. after it's been approved by the state board. After it's been approved. Well, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. That makes they, sense to me. Then they, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is, it's very odd. Um, uh, then there will be one public hearing. Wow. Uh, on this and then but it's a will... done deal at that point well i don't know i mean we've recently seen some language in state law that says the legislature has to be involved and i'm not just talking about the rules committee the joint legislative yeah. committee on administrative mm -hmm. rules but that the general court needs to be involved whether that means all the members in the house and senate you know i don't know uh, whether that means the the uh, I'm I'm on a, uh, a statutory committee with um, Representative Ladd, Representative Cornell also from the Education Committee, Senator Ward is on it, on oversight on the accountability, and whether that committee also has to uh, get involved in this. So so we're a little unclear right now, but what we are clear on though is that a recent right to know request um, submitted by a number of media outlets on the Commissioner of Education to um, produce what's been going on was rejected by the Department of Education. Do they have to right to do that with a 91A for people, you know, it's a, it's a right to know, do they have, can they do that? Well, apparently their legal counsel thinks they can. And the basis for their argument was that they contracted it out to a third party to do the work. And so it's wow. not the department doing the work. And, you know, I, 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 you know, just because you contract something out doesn't mean you contracted out your response. Are they going to go further with that, Dave? Are they going to appeal that? Um, I'm not quite sure where that, where that yeah. stands. Yeah. Oh, right that makes, now. that but, makes me furious. Yeah. Yeah. No, but, it's, it's really, it's, it's outrageous. Uh, the process is outrageous, but also the product. That um, that and there there are, there is an earlier draft of the the rules that uh, that came out I think back in March and uh, and I think um, our committee the education committee was was pushing the department pretty heavily to hey you know show us something so that we can we can get a look at what's going on and I think the 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 draft really does raise a lot of concerns you know for one thing it calls into question what uh, what public schools will actually what particularly high schools what they're actually going to have as a program of studies or if they have to have any program of studies and you know and i think this is all sort of connecting the dots with what the commissioner is doing with things with groups like prager u where you know what if you can get it from a uh, from an approved vendor like prager u then the school is meeting its um responsibility it's accountability yeah and yeah. so you know you 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 wonder if if this were uh expanded and cert certainly sounds like what the commissioner of education wants to do and then what the state board you know and these are the keep in mind these are all people that were um, appointed by um governor sununu and they are uniform in their vision and thinking in uh, in this area so if if basically um our public schools which are among the best in the country, producing student outcomes among the best in the country, are going to be overhauled with 
changes in the rules that basically allow them to contract out their curriculum and their instruction to 15, four and a half, 15, five minute videos and a multiple guess and get a half a credit uh, for that. And that's the extent of a public education. Then, um, then uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a pro I went to public schools here in Hopkinton, K-12. Made a lot of friends, you know, uh, during that time. Some of my, our best friends are, are classmates of mine from, nice. from public school. And, you know, I started a business, I started a tech company, and, you know, I've served on a school board, and now serve, serving with you, Anita, in the, in the legislature. And I think we're going to be losing a lot if, if our public schools go in, a, um, go in a direction that the commissioner wants to take. I, I do want to say that um, I believe that if we have a Democratic a, a governor who is a Democrat in 2024, I think the commissioner will be gone. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah. But there's a lot of things we need in 2024, not just making sure that, that the rules don't destroy our public schools, but that we've got a legislature and a governor that will begin to take a look at serious reforms in terms of how we go about providing equitable school funding in New Hampshire. And uh, when I say that, I chaired the back in 2020, the Commission to Study School Funding. We had 17 members of that commission from all across the state, many of whom came out of uh, public schools as superintendents and administrators and special ed directors, but also uh, former um, commissioner from the Department of Revenue Administra uh, Administration, uh, people who had served on the State Board of Education. I think there were six legislators, six or seven legislators on the commission. And it wasn't all Democrats, it wasn't all Republicans. There were diverse viewpoints on that, but we learned a lot through that work. And the recommendations that the report lays out show how fair school funding can be done a number of different ways. Doesn't require an income tax, doesn't require a, a, a broad-based tax. You could do it with that, but it doesn't require that. It doesn't require substantial changes to our current uh, revenue structure in New Hampshire but it does illustrate some things that appear to be unconstitutional. Uh, that's obviously not up to our commission to determine. That's right, up to a right. court. But having a legislature and a governor that can respond to something that I think every people across the Grand State realize, it doesn't matter if you're a, a, a Republican, a Democrat, or an undeclared or independent you know, voter, you know, people people see the inequities that exist both from a from a tax standpoint, because you got folks out in the seacoast, out in and uh, you know we've got obviously good friends in the legislature from uh, from Rye and Newcastle, but they're paying some of the lowest tax rates in the state. Mm -hmm. Here in Hopkinton, we're paying uh, among the highest tax rates uh, right. in the state. You can go 20 minutes up the road, or half hour up the road, up to Newport. And they're paying one of the highest tax rates. Right, right. We have the same situation in the North Country yeah. where Berlin yeah. um, has some of the highest properties. So let's use that as a segue to talk about the Conville RAND cases, which does involve um, school funding. And maybe you can just give a synopsis of those two, two bills. And they seem to be um, bound together in terms of the decision-making process and where, where that's heading. They are. No, thanks. Thanks. They're both in Superior Court um, in Rockingham. And they're both being heard by the same judge. The Conval case uh, 
I think the, the hearings have concluded on that. And so this is a case that was brought forward by the plaintiffs. Uh, the lead plaintiff is the, uh, the school board at Conval, which is in the Peterborough, serves um, families in the Peterborough area, Conval School District. And they basically allege in their um, complaint that the state is not living up to its constitutional mandate to fund an adequate education. And so they, uh, they basically lay out through their, their pleading that the cost of an adequate, adequate education is not what was at the time the case was filed, uh, $3,900, you know, base cost plus, uh, plus a little bit of, uh, you know, sort of like a, a, a paltry amount of, of, of differentiated, you know, grants coming from the, from the state, but something much more significant than that. And a lot of school districts uh, from around the state that basically include more than I think half of the, the serve more than half of the students statewide have joined that case. And so that we're, we're waiting a decision on from right. Rockingham right. Superior could come out any day now. You know, I'm sure no matter what happens in the decision, whether it's for the plaintiffs or whether it's for the state, uh, that'll get uh, that'll get appealed to the Supreme Court. The other case is called um, the Rand case, and they're the I think the lead plaintiff in this. And this one is specific to the uh, the statewide education property tax. And in that case, it's alleged that the statewide education property tax is not being imposed in a way that is uniform across the state. In fact, some places that don't have um, any students in the, or very few students mm-hmm. will collect that tax, keep that tax revenue and, on the school side, and then impart a negative tax rate. Right? This is a bit wonky too, Whoa. On, the, on the municipal side. Well, I was not aware of that. That's and, pretty funky. Yeah, so it's yeah. a little weird. So, um, so they, they essentially get to get to use these revenues beyond what what other towns are going to be able to do. There's another group of towns back 20 years ago called themselves the donor towns. And this is sort of what got us into this situation that collect more in their statewide education property tax than it costs for them to deliver an adequate education. So most towns don't collect enough. And so we get an additional grant. So Hopkins, one of them, Newport's one of them, Berlin's one of them. They get additional grant money from the state up to the cost of an adequate education. But for the towns that that collect more, they get to keep that excess property tax and use that to pay for things or essentially offset their local education property tax. So it's essentially a rebate. It's a refund that uh, that's depending upon your zip code. It's not dependent upon anything else. So that case, the Rand case, is is going to be looking at that, the donor town uh, situation. Yeah, yeah. And so there has been some action in in Rand. The plaintiffs made a settlement offer to the state to say, okay, end the negative tax rates in 2024, end the excess swept, you know, this excess state property tax that's retained, end that in 2025, and that'll that'll essentially address the uh, the constitutional concerns that have been raised but i don't believe as of yet the plaintiffs have had any response that the state is interested right right well that'll be interesting i know that's coming out i know that constituents in my town are very um 
not not real pleased about the idea of, of being a donor town. And I also remember a couple of years ago, a constituent said to me, uh, she was a woman in her 80s, and she said, well, why should I be paying for schools? I don't have kids in schools. And I thought to myself, well, should we not be paying, helping to pay for health care or some of the other services that we as, as seniors take advantage of? But yeah, and you know, I've 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 heard people say that before too. You know, at the same time, we want to make sure that we've got a thriving economy and that businesses can hire people and that businesses can hire people with skills. And when we don't have a uh, a skilled workforce, then we don't have a strong economy. And right. and and this is something that does affect all of us. And I think you know, business owners, whether they're in the North Country or they're on the Sea Coast or in their Lakes region or they're down the southern part of the state or any part of the state are gonna to wanna to make sure that they can hire kids from Manchester, that they can hire right. kids from Newport, mm -hmm. that they can hire kids from Berlin and Claremont and Pittsfield. And I wanna make sure that these kids, are, these employees are educated, that they can interact with, with our customers, that they have good social emotional skills, that they have skills in self-advocacy. So that's something that's good for all of us, and that's why we should all be paying. For but but those are some qualities that we don't even see in the legislature some days, caring sure. and yep. caring and uh, respect. But we're working on it. Yep. We're working on yep. it. Well, that leads me to my last question, which is going to veer in a little different um, direction. Now, I know Education Committee is one of the hardest, maybe is the hardest working committee. I know you often work five days a week. Um, when we're in session, you're 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 seem to be, whenever I try to reach uh, my colleague Steve Woodcock, who says I'm I'm in I'm in education committee. It doesn't matter what time of year it is. So I, I'm curious to know what it's like um, coming to consensus in that you've got an interesting group um, to say the least. Uh, you've got you know yourself, some of the some of the my colleague Linda Tanner, Steve Woodcock, Mel Myler, who have one. I, I guess lean to, to to have a certain perspective, and then you have people like Katie Pertnell, Glenn Cordelli, and Mike Belcher who are you know um, at a different extreme. So how how do you all work together, and how does how does that fly? Well, that's a that's a great question, and and um, and I'll, I'll say right up front, it's really it's really hard, Anita. Um, and and you know we saw that last last term, or not last term, this past year, uh, during the during the session. When um, education bills, well, we saw it in other committees too, but but you know we, we were buried in bills. We had like 120 bills. Right. But right. Uh, but there was one day where we probably had 30 bills on the calendar, where 25 of them came out without a recommendation. You know, 10-10 split. Right. Um, meaning that that there was no consensus in the committee on whether the bill should pass or be defeated. Ten Republicans, ten Democrats could yeah, become comfortable. Right, right. Now, do you do you go to the when you have a ten ten vote, do you take those bills to do some of you take them to the floor anyway? So so on, on this particular day, we would have been there all day, all night, and into the next day mm -hmm. just to get through just to get through the debates yep. on these bills. So the best that working with Representative Myler, who's the ranking Democrat, Representative Ladd, who's the chair, and Representative Cordelli, who's the vice chair of the committee, we were able to agree that we'd each argue two or three of them, and okay. we would table the rest. They, right, so, right. And just just some people to understand this, because we have a similar situation in commerce. When it's a 10 Democrats, 10 Republicans, there's sometimes an informal agreement that you won't um, take it. When I say take it to the floor, you won't take it to the full house to debate it. 
And that's what we've done for the most part, though um, I'm of the opinion now uh, going into the second year as ranking member of Commerce that we got when we have a bill that we really believe in, I, I think we, we should take it to the floor. Mm-hmm. So that, that's where we're at. Right. I, I think, I, I I think we, yeah. we, we do have to be disciplined and, and mm-hmm. pick the pick the bills that are most right. meaningful. Right. To, we don't want to waste people's time. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. Um, and, I, and the other thing I just wanted to say is that um, I was on Commerce last term, and I'm on it now. And for I don't know about for you, for us, the difference is night and day. The previous two years, I think a lot of us, particularly on the committee, thought it was one of the worst committees to be on because we had s- such a, a diversion in, 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 in thinking. We had some people, frankly, who were on the very far right, and then there were others in the middle and and way to the way to the left, and we couldn't. I mean, it was just so contentious. And as a result of that, seven of my Dem colleagues did not run for office again because they just had had enough. But this term, it is it is so different. You know, we have some of the same people, but some of the real um, contentious people left or didn't get reelected. And one of the things that really helped, and it's such a simple thing, is our chair, John Hunt, have us now sit Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican, and we talk to each other. And I am now sitting next to um, Paul Terry, who, um, frankly, the first two years, I was like, who is this guy? And now I sit next to him. You know, I probably disagree with him on just about everything, but I like him. As a person, I like him and we can joke around, which is so different. It's such a different environment for legislating bills than when you have when you have eyes rolling and, and just a lot of animosity in the room. And I don't know if you, you're experiencing it, if it's better this year in your committee. Well, it, it hasn't gotten better this year. I'm sorry to hear that. And, and, and yeah. part, part of it, Anita, is that is that education is really on the front line of the, um, yeah. the political, you know, social wars that, that are being waged nationally right now and in, right. In, in other states and we're going to be buried with bills again this year too and so much of this is is ideologically driven that it's really disrupted any ability to seek consensus or to seek compromise. right right and, that's what we're you know seeing. and i think we all get sent to concord to obviously you know represent our our districts but also think think beyond our districts to the granite state or think beyond just our voters who elected right. us and think about the granite state and think about how to come to consensus on legislation that's that's meaningful and uh, and good you know and and moves things in a in a positive direction for um uh, for people to make their lives better right because i think so much of of the stuff that's being proposed right now is so ideologically based there's just no there's in a lot so many cases there's just not room for compromise. I mean, right, you don't right. you don't you don't compromise on well, did the Holocaust happen or not? I mean, you don't compromise on well, maybe slavery had some positive social and economic benefits. Yeah. You don't compromise on language and terminology that Prager is suggesting is acceptable. I, I totally agree. And last thing, just want to say, I mean, I just seeing so many similarities now between what's happening in Concord and what's happening in Washington, D.C. You know, you have a clash of, as you say, a clash of ideology. And many times at points in times, it just seems like it just has paralyzed the whole institution. Yeah. 
and we seem to be you know being able to move along somewhat but it does get in our way often Mm -hmm. well i'm 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 hoping anita that the the commerce committee and uh, and you know I saw I served on that for two terms my yeah. first two terms in the yeah, house I do. and uh, and that was the busiest committee when when we um, don't have as many bills as you back back then we didn't have that many last time yeah but it, we we had we were the we were by far the busiest committee back then and since I moved to education education's been the busiest committee so maybe the bills right. are just following me but uh, uh, yeah I think so I think I think we had like under 60 bills last time that's so still a lot was, of bills that's still a very busy committee there's no not like not like you have but but, but, but anyway but, but i hope <laughs> but i hope commerce will look favorably uh in a bipartisan way on a bill that that i've sponsored that makes i think a a nice little tweak improvement to the the state's um insurance program for retired state employees and uh it was at the request actually of a constituent and it should uh, go through. Uh, it doesn't pr- have costs to the state, but this is the type of stuff too that that if we can just put our ideological things, right, put, that, right. put that stuff on the sideline, and work on what our constituents are asking us to do, then you know hopefully we can get back into a, a mode where we're working across the aisle. Well, I, I think you'll find some of that in, the, in commerce this year, and and uh, we can. I'm sure we can sway Chairman Hunter uh, the the way this, the, the way uh, the way the bill should go. Good. But, <laughs> so, so, Dave, I want to thank you for joining me on on digging in. Um, I really appreciate it, and uh, you know, you are known as one of the hardest working reps in in the, in the legislature, and and a real warrior for public education. So, um, really want to thank you for all of your time. Well, thank you so much. I'm delighted to uh, to to join you, Anita. And uh, I love the podcast. I love the digging in. I love that you're willing to to let me let me go at least a little bit into the weeds on things. And if if you or anybody uh, needs to find me, just knock on the door in LOB room 207. Yeah, you're always there. Any time of day, you know, we've always got there. we got sleeping bags and cots set up in the back. So, I'm sure you uh, that's do. Where, that's I'm where sure you'll find you us. <laughs> Digging In is proud to announce this week's New Hampshire Putts of the Week Award. It will go to two state representatives, Representative Alicia Likas of Hudson and Glenn Cordelli of Tufton Borough. They are recognized for their work in siphoning New Hampshire taxpayer money from public to private and religious schools. This is the second time we recognize Representative Cordelli for his work depleting state funding of public schools. Representative Cordelli's bill, which is HB 1665, will increase the income limit of a family participating in the Education Freedom Account Program from 350 to 500% of the federal poverty designation. To sweeten the deal, you do not need to reapply once you are accepted into the program. Thus, you're still good to go if you win the lottery or inherit $10 million from grandma and grandpa. The real star of this week's New Hampshire Putts of the Week Award is Representative Alicia Lekas from Hudson, whose House Bill 1634 will do away with any income ceiling to qualify for the program. Now, hypothetically, this means that Governor Sununu would qualify to send his children to private school for his $144,000 salary. And he'd continue to qualify the program once he leaves the state house and potentially earns millions in the private sector. The state is spending an average of 5200 on each student participating in the program. 
This means that a family with two children could get over $10,000 and a family with four children could get over $21,000 with little, if any, accountability or oversight. For the affluent participants in the program, may I make the following suggestions? If you have two children, you can get those deluxe pair of jet skis you are ogling for your tropical getaway. With four children, you can blow $20,000 on first-class airfare with Emirate Air and fly the kids' coach. Or you could make a down payment on a lakefront house or that Mercedes that you've been eyeing. There are limitless opportunities on what you can do with your new taxpayer dollars to optimize your lifestyle. The argument will be that this program benefits the disenfranchised for whom public schools are not viable. In truth, the majority who benefit from this program are families who already send their children to private or charter schools. In truth, the majority who benefit from this program are families who already send their children to private or religious schools and can now benefit from this new entitlement program. Please remember to give your thanks to these two individuals for their taxpayer support for the affluent. Well done, Representatives Cordelli and Lakas. Thank you for listening to Digging In. I want to thank Representative Dave Luno for his generous time in talking with me on the podcast. My next episode will be with cannabis warriors, Tim Egan and Dr. Riley Kirk. Tim is a member of the New Hampshire Cannabis Association and former state representative. And Dr. Kirk is a cannabis and natural product chemist. You may have guessed that we'll be speaking about cannabis and legalization efforts in New Hampshire. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Digging In wherever you get your podcasts. I would also appreciate it if you could spread the word about this podcast to your friends and on social media.